Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So one of our family's favorite Christmas movies now is the Polar Express. And so if you haven't seen the Polar Express, it's basically about a train that kind of travels through neighborhoods, picking up children and taking them to the North Pole where they're going to meet Santa. It sounds a little bit creepy when you describe it that way because there's not a whole lot of adult supervision on the train, but you know, it's, it's all good. You know, they pick up these kids, take them up there. And if you've seen the movie, you know that one of the characters is named Billy, and Billy is from the, the wrong side of the tracks. Billy is from a, a poor area. He has, has had a rough time of life, and he really was hesitant to get on the train. He, he ends up like saying, I'm not getting on, and then he goes running after the train to, to get on it. And, and when, when they get to the North Pole, when they get to the crucial point in the, in the story, when they're going to meet Santa, Billy, again, is reluctant. He's just going to hang back, and he's not going. And so a couple of his friends come to try to convince him to come and see Santa, and the conversation goes like this. So Christmas doesn't work out for, for Billy. We, the, the girl's response here is really interesting, and we could spend time kind of dissecting that, you know, her, her whole characterization of Christmas. I mean, family is good, but then, you know, it's, it's lights, it's decorations, and it's all building towards, you know, Santa giving a present. Like, that is the, the pinnacle of what Christmas is about. We could spend time on that. But she's, she's sharing all of this with Billy, who probably hasn't experienced very much of that at all, maybe has never even received a present. Present in, in his life. And so as the movie progresses, eventually Billy gets, he finds that he has a, a giant present, like it's a present box as big as he is. And I know I'm kind of giving it away, but if you haven't seen it yet, it's been out for 15 years. So that's, that's <laughs> your issue. So anyway, he got the present. We never really find out what's in the box, but what we do get the sense, we get the impression as the movie goes on that, that this box is like going to change his life. The fact that he got a present is going to change his life. And there's no epilogue to the movie, so we never get to see really how everything plays out. But I think we all know that no present in a box is going to change someone's life. And I wonder this morning if you have ever thought what Billy said, that Christmas just doesn't work out for me. I wonder if you have ever thought that you know, all the, the food, the hype, the lights, the decorations, even the presents, it, it doesn't deliver on the hope that we often really look for at, at this time of year, and it kind of just leaves us let down. I, I was talking with a family a few weeks ago who experienced a devastating loss this year, and I asked how they were doing, and they said, well, the, you know, the holidays are coming up, Thanksgiving is coming, and then she, the, the mom said, uh, Christmas is coming like a freight train. I think, as, as was said earlier, 
Christmas is not always something that we look forward to, and Christmas is not always easy, and oftentimes Christmas is disappointing because what we wish for, the perfection that we wish for, it, it never really quite plays out. And what we want to talk about this morning is that there is a hope embedded in Christmas that goes all the way back to the beginning of human existence, and it stretches all the way forward to the paradise that God has planned for us in eternity, we find ourselves in between. We find ourselves in the middle. And we're going to talk today about how to hold on to a hope that is, is real and that God really delivers for us. So if you would take a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. I'm sure somebody was thinking that. Genesis 1, 1, very first page of your Bible. Christmas did not start in Bethlehem. It started in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation. And I, I realize that in, in a group like this today, probably not everyone believes in the creation account as it's laid out in the first couple of chapters of, of Genesis. You, you may be here this morning, maybe you're visiting with family for Thanksgiving and you're, you're along for that, or you're just, you know, kind of sparked to, to maybe come back to church at holiday time, and, and you're, you struggle with this idea of six literal days of creation, because you look at science and you say, well, the, I mean, the earth looks really, really old, how, cause, how does that fit together? If, if you struggle with that this morning, then I just, I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want to just ask that you would set aside the science for the next couple of minutes. And it's not because I don't think the science and the scripture can be reconciled, because I, I do believe that scripture is true. I believe that what we discover from science is, is true. Sometimes the, the, the ways we interpret what we discover from science isn't, isn't always accurate. But I do believe they can be synthesized. But what I just want to ask you to do today is just set aside the science because there are some themes in this creation account about human nature that get carried all the way from the very beginning of the Bible, the first book, Genesis, all the way to the end of Revelation. And we're going to, we're going to kind of drop in and we're going to look at several passages this morning. I'm going to keep you on your toes. We're going to try to keep you with us as we put this up on the screen. But um, we're, we're just going to see how these themes weave through Scripture and what God has to say about us as humans and the hope that we can have. So we're going to begin right at the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was what? Good. All right, so there's a, there's a little lesson here for us. We, we should pause to see that God does a task. He accomplishes a task. And then he celebrates it. He accomplishes the task and he says, it was good. This is something that many of us can learn to do because many of us accomplish a task 
and then we rush on to the next task, and we don't really celebrate those things. It's, it's actually following God's example to celebrate the things that, that we accomplish. And so if we had time, we won't read through every day of creation, but God is creating and calling things into existence each day. And every time he is saying it was good, and then it ends at the end of chapter one, if you go to, to verse 31, it culminates with this. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. He's, he's celebrating that creation is good. And we see that creation is good. I mean, we've had, we had several beautiful, beautiful days this past week. And, and even, I mean, in the last few months, I mean, the brilliance of the, the trees, the, the flavors of Thanksgiving. I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it because it's so true. I'm so thankful that God didn't make all of our food to taste like tofu. I mean, he could have because, I mean, it would give us the nutrients we need, but it might just be like, yeah, yeah, this is nasty. I'm so thankful for all the different flavors of Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, you know, that it all tastes so good. Thank you for the colors. Thank you for music. Thank you for all this abundance. He made these things, and they are very very good. And then Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of humans. And we'll just highlight a few verses in this chapter. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God creates humans. He puts them in this place called Eden. The word Eden means delight or luxury. It's paradise. I mean, this is a perfect place that God puts them. And then God gives them a command and a consequence. Because God has the right to do that. If God is the creator, he has the right to create boundaries for, for us. This is, incidentally, I, I believe this is why a lot of people struggle with the idea of God as a creator and try to find explanations of another way that we came to exist by a lot of random mutations that actually improved over a long, long, long period of time. Because if that's the case, then we're not accountable to anyone. But... If there's a creator who created us, he has the right to give us a command and a consequence, which he does in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The consequence, the Hebrew says, dying, you will die. God has the authority to give a command and give a consequence. And this is the point where some people go sour on God because they're like, okay, here it is. Look how restrictive he is. He tells me what I can and can't do. He tells me I can't do something. That's because that's God wants to take all my fun. But really now, I mean, let's look at this again to see, I mean, how restrictive is God in verse 16? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden except this one tree, really? Is that restrictive? 
I mean, this is God giving incredible freedom and abundance, and he's saying, here's, here's your choice. I'm giving you one choice to make. And think about this. As God gives that choice, God is giving a gift. He, he's giving the gift of free will. If he didn't give that choice, if we didn't have that choice, then basically man would just be there working in the garden. He would be really, in many ways, similar to a robot. Because it's like God created him, just, just do your thing, and we're good. But God doesn't want robots. God wants a love relationship with us. And love has to be chosen. Obedience has to be chosen. It's not forced. So God gives a choice so that he will see if the man and the woman will actually love him in return. There's a dignity and a power in having a choice. There is also a vulnerability in having a choice because we can make a poor choice. And that's what we see as we go on to chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, first off, is that what God said? No, that was like the, the opposite of what God said. You can't eat from any tree. No, you can eat from every tree except for this one. So that's what Satan loves to do. What the enemy of God loves to do is to twist his words and to make him seem more restrictive than he is. But the second thing that, that I have to comment on, because I, again, I, I want to talk to those of you who may be here who you don't believe quite all of this. You're like, when we get to this point, it's like talking serpent, really? Like, really? Like, okay, this is why I don't buy into all of this. And here's what I would say in response to that. What we learn later on in Scripture is that this is no ordinary serpent. This is no ordinary snake. It's actually energized by Satan, the enemy of God. We see that later in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. It says, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is no ordinary serpent. This is a representation of, of Satan himself. And so with that in mind, let's read on. The serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any other beast. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say don't touch it? No. I mean, he said don't eat from it. But again, she's adding to the restrictions. Human tendency, God's more restrictive than he actually is. Verse 4, the the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Direct contradiction of what God, he actually quotes God better than she does, but he twists it exactly 180. You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So as God's enemy, the serpent wants to make disobedience Sound, sound good. And notice something in, in verse 3. Notice that this tree that God for, forbade, this tree is in the center of the garden. It says this fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
The choices that God gives us in life are always going to be right in the center of our life. The choices that count. They're not off to the periphery somewhere and we don't really think about them. There are choices that are right there in the center. That's where our temptation comes. That's where our choice comes of whether we're going to be obedient or not. And so you may be in a situation right now where you're being enticed to do something, tempted towards something that you know in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart, you know, yeah, this is not something God would want me to do. But you're enticed toward, that's, that's going to be right front and foremost in the center of your life. And you have a choice, just like this first man and woman did. Are you going to obey God or are you going to disobey and if the, if the first man and woman had been obedient to God, they would have stood as this shining example through history of freedom of choice exercised in a way that honors God and obeys him. Would have been a, an awesome story, but it didn't turn out that way. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise. See, all of these sensual things that she's seeing, it, it looks like it's going to taste good, all of these things that run counter to the command of God, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What, what did the serpent say they would know? That they would know good and evil. And what did they actually know? They knew that they were naked. This is the reward for, for being disobedient. This, this is what they got for doing what God promised, what God asked them not to do. See, sin never lives up to the devil's promises. The devil will promise you that everything's going to be better. This is going to satisfy you. Sin never lives up to the devil's promises. And you cannot become like God by disobeying God. It, that was his promise, too. You're, you're going to be more like God, and, and they just the, the only thing you get by disobeying God is to be separated from God. And so they're sowing fig leaves and covering themselves. And then verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, question, did God know where he was? Answer, yes. I mean, of course he knew where he was. He's not going to be hidden by... The creator of the universe is not, you know, thrown off by some bushes here. He's calling Adam to accountability. Where are you? And Adam said, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, rhetorical question, calling Adam to accountability, and then watch what he says, verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see the, the spiral of blame shifting, the spiral of 
hiding ourselves, separating ourselves from God and each other. This, this is, these are the themes that we see in our world to today. This is what gets played out in your house and mine every day. These are the universal things that happen to us because of the entrance of sin into the world. It is endemic in us to rebel against what God asks us to do. If, if you don't believe that, then I would just ask you, have you ever been around a young child that you had to teach to disobey, to say no, to go this way when you tell them to go this way, to, to run away when you ask them to come? To you? Did you ever have to teach a child that? It, it's born into us. It's innate into us. And so there is an accountability for disobedience as we read on here. The first piece of accountability we see in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then listen to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and right here, right here in the first curse, right, right here on page three of your Bible is the first mention we have of Christmas. Because there's something really unusual about the word offspring here. Verse 15, if you have a, an ESV as I do, there's a footnote at the bottom that says that's, the, that's actually the Hebrew word for seed. So actually the way this word reads is, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now without going into all the nuts and bolts of high school biology, okay, women do not produce seed. Okay? Women produce an egg, men produce a seed. And so for God to say that there's uh, her seed, that's a very unusual phrase. And it's because it's a reference to the one woman who will give birth without human seed being involved. And we know him as Jesus. All the way back on page three of your Bible, in the first curse when the man and woman have blown it, and we're into the spiral downward. God is promising hope to, to come, that there is a Messiah who will come. There's a promise of hope. And Christmas, Christmas is a promise kept. Christmas is God keeping this promise that he made on page three of, of your Bible. The coming of a Savior at Christmas is the fulfillment of a promise. It is... He came to reverse the damage that Satan had done in introducing sin to the world. It's what we see when the angel comes to Joseph and predicts that this child is going to be born. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. God had to save us from our sins. See, for, for us, the consequences of sin, the pollution of sin is so familiar. We're, we're just used to it. We don't even know what the world could be like without it. It's just common to us. 
So it's common. Here, here's the here's the reveal. Here's what's here. Not a toaster, but a fish. Oh, hey, there's uh, this. This is Dennis. Uh, my daughter Jessica adopted Dennis uh, this week, and so. Dennis kind of serves as an illustration for us of kind of living in his little world here. And Dennis, over time, is going to pollute his water. I won't get into the specifics of how he's going to pollute it, but you can fill that in. He's going to pollute his water. And so if someone, if if Dennis were left alone, and if someone did not intervene from the outside, Dennis would pollute himself to death. There has to be an intervention from the outside to, to clean this water out and keep Dennis alive. And in a similar way, you and I pollute our world with sin. And if someone from the outside does not intervene, then we will pollute ourselves to death. I mean, some people pollute the world in, in really dramatic ways. And they, they harm people intentionally. They, they go after people to steal from them or to, to harm them bodily. Pro- probably most people in this room don't fall into that category, but we would all fall into a category of saying that sometimes we're clumsy with our words. Sometimes we don't guard our hearts and we judge other people and that comes out in hurtful things that we say and, and do and Disappoint, And so there, there's pollution of all different sorts and stripes that comes out of us. And your pollution may not be as bad as mine, but if we are left to ourselves and there's no one from the outside who comes in to clean us up, we, we will pollute ourselves to death. That's the, the curse that God has placed on us and that's the curse that sin has brought in to us. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, God does two things to protect people in a polluted world. Verse, verse 21. Uh, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The first thing God did to protect the man and woman was to ban them from staying in the garden and eating from the tree of life. Because if they had now eaten from the tree of life after they've eaten from the the tree that they were told not to, now they would live forever in this state of sin. And so God is protecting them by saying, you you have no access to that anymore. And then the second thing that he does in verse 21 is he replaces their garments of fig leaves and he makes for them garments of skin. I kind of look at this like God bundles them up before sending them out into the cold. Question, where does God get garments of skin? Has to kill something. So remember the consequence? He said, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And so when we sin... Someone has to pay that penalty. And this is the first example we have of a substitution. 
where God causes something else to die so that they can be covered. And that principle of substitution will be carried out then the rest of the way through Scripture because what we will encounter in the nation of Israel is this very elaborate sacrificial system where people, when they sin, are to bring an animal that is to be killed in their place. And this is really foreign to us, and it's hard to imagine because we don't even kill our own food to eat, like our turkeys. Like, we don't even do that for ourselves. We just go to the grocery store, and it's all, like, frozen up in a thing. I mean, because it would be gruesome. I mean, it's gruesome if you're going to, like, butcher the turkey yourself and everything. We're removed from all of that, but that was very much God had that right in front of his people to say this is the effect of your sin. This is what it means. Something has to die. And what we learn as we continue on in the pages of Scripture is that actually the sacrifice of an animal can't cover the sins of a human being because it's not a like for like. The worth of an animal doesn't compare to the worth of a person who is made in the image of God. And so someone in the image of God has to die as a substitute and that's why a Messiah, Jesus, had to come. It's a, all of this, well, all of what's happening here in Genesis 3.15 is a foreshadowing that there's a Messiah who's going to come who can cover our sin. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 53.6. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's two alls in this verse. The first one is bad news. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have disobeyed. All of us, when faced with that choice that God has put in front of us, all of us have chosen to, to be disobedient in some way, shape, or form, and in many ways, shapes, and forms. We have all gone our own way. But the good news is that the Lord has laid on him, on Christ. You can keep that verse up there if you would. The Lord has laid on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Here's what that means. Your iniquity can't stay on you. You can't carry it because you can't clean yourself up. You can't clean your own tank. Someone from the outside has to do it for you. And, and praise God, Jesus has the capacity to carry the sins of all of us. That's who was promised in Genesis 3.15. That was who was promised in this curse when God said that this offspring, this seed who was to come, will bruise your head. He was talking to the serpent. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. So Satan bruised Jesus' heel. He, he took him through a process of rejection, crucifixion, death, burial. But it was, it was a bruise to his heel because he rose again. Jesus bruised Satan's head by his victory over death. He has defeated the enemy. And one day he will put him away for, for good. And if, if I have the choice of whether somebody's going to bruise my heel or my head, I'd, I'd rather have neither, but I'll take the heel, thank you very much, over somebody hitting my, my head. And so one day, see, see, Christmas is a promise kept 
And, and the good news is that the hope of Christmas is that God who has kept his promises from the past is going to keep all of his promises that are yet future. And so he's going to keep his promise to put away Satan forever. We see that in Revelation 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They will be put away. We will be done with them. They will not have the power to deceive any longer. That's, that's a promise yet to come and we can be confident that it will happen because God's kept his promise to date of sending a savior and while we are going from beginning to end, do, remember the, the second important tree that was in the center of the garden. The first one was the one that they were to not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the other tree? The tree of life that they were banned from. But if we go all the way to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do our nations need healing? No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. God wants every one of us there in that scene. He wants to reverse the curse in your life. And so he's put a choice in front of you now. Some of you have already made that choice, but some of you may be here this morning and maybe you're still trying to clean up your own pollution. And God says, just give, give that up and bring your pollution to Jesus. This is the beautiful thing about Jesus that he doesn't mind when we bring him pollution he came to take care of your pollution, to cleanse it. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you make today to be the choice to, to follow him, to ask Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you, to make you new? For those of you who have already made that choice, the hope that we have, the hope that's embedded in Christmas is that the God who has kept his promises in the past is going to keep every promise that is yet to come all the way to the end. And as we live in between, there are all these in-between promises that God gives us that we can cling on to and, and hold on to. And I want to encourage you. That's why that card was there on your seat when you came in to sit down, is for you to grab hold of a promise during this Advent season one of those in-between promises that sustains you between the beginning and the end. To, to grab hold of a promise. I'm going to give you a few examples, but maybe you will grab hold of one that you're in your own reading this month during this Advent season. Let me just give you a few examples, and you can grab one of these if you want to. The first is God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Does anybody need God's presence right now in this world? I, I do. Very present help in trouble. A second is Jesus speaking, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Anybody need rest? Jesus offers it as we come to him.
third one we heard earlier in the service, which wasn't planned, but that's one of those God things. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anybody need some peace? God offers it, and he keeps every one of his promises. And, and a fourth one, there are so many we could pick from. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. God wants to displace the cares in your heart with his consolation, with his comfort. What promise do you need to cling onto and hold onto? Fuel, fuel your faith in this Advent season with the knowledge that God has been faithful to keep his promises in the past. Christmas is a promise kept. He's going to keep every promise that he's made. Fuel your faith for the future with that knowledge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is faithful, who keeps your promises. Thank you for your knowledge of all time and how you saw from the very beginning that we would need a Savior and you have provided him in the person of Christ. And so we thank you for that substitution that is possible for us today. And I pray for the person who is, is sitting here listening today who has never asked you to be their substitute, who has never asked you to clean up their pollution. And I pray that today would be their day, Jesus, to, to call out to you. I pray for others in the room here who are struggling in this in-between time, between the, the time of the, the fall and the spiral downward and the time of paradise that is yet to come. As we are in this in-between struggling, Lord, would you speak, Lord, a specific promise to each of our hearts that we can hold on to, cling on to, and have a confidence in that you will fulfill as you have fulfilled faithfully over the years. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.